when movie star and matinee idol Jennifer Lawrence was 14 years old. She came up from Kentucky with her family and was a tourist in Times Square when she was discovered. And they marched her down the street to audition for a Reese's Peanut Butter Cup commercial. She got the gig, and the next thing you know, she's a movie star. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about getting discovered. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. You've got an idea that might just change the world. But even the best ideas can benefit from additional and diverse perspectives. That's why we built Arminda. Arminda is a community of innovators, innovators who help each other by providing their thoughts and feedback when it's needed most at the concept stage. Whether you're an architect or a biologist, an economist or a school teacher, we can give your next project an additional point of view. Learn more and join for free at arminda.net. That's A-R-M-I-N-D-A dot net. So this is a bit of a rant, but it is something that is becoming more and more widespread as we go digital, as the cost to getting to market is cheaper than ever, as attention keeps getting spread thinner and thinner, and as more and more people grow up believing that it is their duty, their obligation, and their right to be slightly or even more than slightly famous. So let's start with Clubhouse. Clubhouse was the hot thing of 2021. It is unlikely to be the hot thing going forward because it was so easy to copy, but also because they didn't really understand what was on offer when it came to discovery. Now, when Pluto is discovered, it doesn't mean that Pluto is invented, that Pluto was created. It just means that human beings, certain human beings, now know about it. Columbus did not discover America, neither did some Vikings or some explorers from China. It was already here. There were already people living here. So the word discovered, just to begin with, we have to be clear about what we mean. What we mean is on someone's radar, that they are choosing to pay attention. And discovery has mattered an enormous amount in the worlds of culture and business for a very long time. The reason is this. Attention flows. Attention is finite. Everybody gets the same amount every day. And for millennia, tens of thousands of years, we were mostly bored that if you wanted to hear some music, you sang some music or you listened to your neighbors sing. And the rest of the time, you were either hunting or growing crops, or before that, you were walking around like a nomad. But you didn't ask what's on Netflix right now. You didn't binge The Sopranos. There wasn't this constant demand for attention parceled into smaller and smaller pieces. When radio came along, suddenly you could make a living, a good living, if a lot of people chose to pay attention to your show. Jack Benny or the shadow, whatever it was. Or when they started programming music on the radio, thanks to the copyright laws, you could get paid and you could sell more music. Suddenly, there was demand for attention. And so gatekeepers come along, the gatekeepers at the publishing house that somehow manage to pick which books get put into the bookstore. That there's the program director 
at the radio station, who decides what's going to go into heavy rotation. That if you are an influential DJ, people are showing up in the 50s and the 60s with suitcases, actual suitcases filled with cash, actual cash, just so that you would play one of their songs so that people would listen to it for free. When you control the gate, you have some level of power. And the gate that people were controlling was the gate to people's attention. Attention flows. If it is not used, it disappears forever. And as these flows of attention became ever more valuable, people did whatever they could to get the gatekeeper to pick them. At Walmart in Bentonville, Arkansas, the last time I was there, there's a giant room filled with cubicles. It turns out the buyers, the people who decide what to sell at Walmart, don't meet with sellers in their offices. The worry was that in that private space, bribes could happen, or someone could just see pictures of your family and then figure out how to be your friend so that you would buy more stuff. No, instead it's a room filled with cubes with cameras overhead, microphones recording everything, so that ostensibly the buyers will make more accurate and honest decisions about who gets shelf space. Why does it matter? Because before the web, shelf space was a shortcut to attention. That the Walmart shopper walking down the aisle isn't looking at every product ever made. They're looking at the products that got picked. These products, at some level, are discovered. There was already Vlasic pickles before Walmart started featuring them. But after Walmart started featuring them, after they were discovered, then more people paid attention and bought some. And yes, you can buy attention by buying ads from certain media companies, but it's an auction and it's really expensive. You get a little bit less than you pay for. But if a gatekeeper picks you, if they support you, if they publish you, you're going to get discovered. And this leads to all sorts of bad behaviors besides the whole idea of keeping people from getting bribed that the casting couch in Hollywood and the horrible, horrible behavior of people like Harvey Weinstein is only possible because people are desperate to get discovered. And so they trade their dignity and their self-respect and their health to somebody who says, I will make you a star. Because of course you were a star before you got there, you just weren't discovered yet. But then, as always, the internet comes along and changes everything. As Chris Anderson has written about, there's a long tale. And the long tale says when there were three TV networks, the gatekeepers had real power. You've heard of Seinfeld. And the reason you've heard of Seinfeld is because someone stuck with it. It did really poorly for months before it found its place. And the fact that it was on right after a show that was super popular certainly helped. A gatekeeper discovered Seinfeld and stuck with it long enough for the public to discover it. When I was at Yahoo, there was a room with more than 200 people working in it, run by a librarian. And their job was to look at all the pages on the internet, as hard as it is to believe that's what they did, look at all the pages of the internet and hand build an index of where they should send you when you decided to search for something. If you could have found one of those librarians and bribed them, you probably could have gotten an enormous amount of traffic. But then Google shows up, 
And Google puts computers to work doing it. And once the explosion of the web happened, there's no way Yahoo could have kept up because there was never enough librarians that you could hire to look at enough web pages. But the thing is that we asserted, anyone who wanted to, quote, be discovered, asserted that somehow Google was conscious, that it was intelligent, that it was making decisions about which pages to promote and which ones not to. And if we couldn't figure it out, then there was just guessing. And so the entire industry of SEO is built, it's probably a multi-billion dollar industry now, around the idea that there's something you can do, a casting couch you can lie on, that will help you get discovered. And for a long time, it sort of worked, particularly if you were willing to compromise your ethics and look for short-term shortcuts that would trick Google into sending you more than your fair share of traffic. Now, Google has an incentive to create this dynamic because people who lose, and that's 99.9% of the people who aren't number one in the slot they seek to be in, can buy their way forward by buying ads, which is how Google makes all their money. And one after another, as social media companies have come along, they have implied or directly promised that they would help people get discovered. Ooh, look how many people are using Facebook. Look how many people are using Twitter. Look how many people are using Clubhouse. You need to be there because every once in a while, someone gets discovered. Every once in a while, someone on TikTok becomes a sensation. The thing about these platforms is that they are not optimized for discovery. Say what you want about Hollywood. Hollywood has always been optimized for discovery. Harrison Ford shows up. He's a carpenter. He's working for 20 bucks an hour. He shows up to install a door in George Lucas's office. And George Lucas says, why don't you read for Han Solo? And that's why we know who Harrison Ford is. You're Han Solo. I used to be. The thing is that they are doing it on purpose with a point of view. And that once they make a decision about someone being discovered, they put all sorts of energy into promoting that person. And then add to it in certain industries. Once that person begins to get traction, the system gives them a chance to earn permission, a connection directly with their fans. So Kevin Kelly's 1,000 True Fans kicks in here because if you have true fans, then they can further your career for years to come. But that's not what Uber did. Uber showed up and said, we want lots and lots of people to use Uber, but we don't want you to know who your driver is. We don't care who your driver is. We want drivers to be fungible, replaceable. We want all the power to go to us. We don't discover Uber drivers. We don't do anything to create a connection between somebody who is in the car and someone who is driving the car. And so what it would really mean to be a gatekeeper to enable discovery is A, you have a filter to decide who you're going to pick. It can't possibly be open to all. And number two is once someone gets through your filter, you do things to promote that person. You pick some winners. And picking winners has a benefit to you and to the audience because now the audience doesn't have to just go through this endless filtering process because you've done something to pick. And the third thing is once you've connected to something that you care about, the system lets you connect to it for the future. That's not what happens on Twitter. Twitter doesn't care what you're reading because Twitter's not in the business of helping someone's tweets reach more people. 
They're just in the business of having you look at a lot of stuff. Just let the system sort itself out. A folksonomy. Just let it all get filtered by humans connecting with other humans. They don't care. And so this is the dilemma that so many social media and other platforms face is how do you get a creator to show up and do their best work if you're not going to help them in any way and it's just yet another crapshoot that the person has to bring their own audience when they go from one place to another. And what we're ending up with are random waves, random waves of trolls or pundits or people who are putting on a show or people who got lucky, but they don't get lucky for long. The YouTube stars of five years ago aren't YouTube stars today, pretty much. And the reason is that these platforms, the ones that have said they're going to get rid of the gatekeeper, have in some way done that by creating this weird lottery, this lottery of attention. The good news is that they are being truthful at some level about what it means to be discovered because they're saying, we don't know. But on the other hand, human culture being what it is, we keep imagining, personifying that the system will discover us. If we just guess right about what the system wants, we'll get more than our fair share of traffic. And so what's the alternative? The alternative is the combination of the smallest viable audience, the purple cow, and permission. Smallest viable audience says, I know that there's a billion people on Facebook. I don't care. There's a thousand people who I want to reach, 10,000, 100,000, that's all. Just figure out who they are, what they want, what they care about. Be specific. Number two, the purple cow. After someone engages with you in any of these media, what do they tell their friends? And the answer most of the time is they don't. They don't spread the word. One reason they don't spread the word is that the platforms don't make it easy or obvious to spread the word. And the other reason is because the work you're doing is really good, but it's not remarkable. It's not worth talking about. And then the third part is permission. Do you earn the privilege of being able to follow up? So if you look at a platform like Medium, founded by the guy who founded Blogger, what you see is that it's really bad at the last part. If someone reads one of your articles on Medium, there's no easy, organic way for you to contact them the next time. That one of the challenges that Twitter went through is this whole idea of what does it mean to follow somebody? How are we parceling out the flow of attention? The Clubhouse, which I started this rant with, is audio. Well, when it's audio, it's really hard to put in all of the information we need to do smart filtering. And when you're done listening to something or you're in the middle of listening to something, how is your attention directed? And if you are the creator of one of these shows, the audience, who does the audience belong to? Well, belong is really not the right word because it doesn't belong to anybody. But it's pretty clear that the middlemen, the social media companies, are insisting that the audience belongs to them, that we're just here taking care of a little plot of land until they take it away from us. The opportunity going forward is to do work that matters for people who care, to be really clear and specific about how much is enough, who you are here to serve, the change you seek to make, and no, you're not going to get discovered. Someone is, but do the math. The math is not in favor of someone being discovered just because they want to.
So Jennifer Lawrence, I hope you're enjoying your Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. And for the rest of us, they're simply the hard work of showing up day after day. Thanks for listening to my rant. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with some juicy questions from previous episodes. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. No ad this week. In fact, an ad about the ads. If you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a new button up there. Let me explain it to you really quick. My friends run akimbo.com, a B Corp that hosts the workshops that you've been hearing about here. But the Akimbo podcast is separate from that. And so going forward, every once in a while, I will talk about some of the workshops my friends are running. But in the meantime, I'd like to talk about what you're interested in. In fact, I'd like you to talk about what you're interested in. So if you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a way that you can upload a 30-second ad for a nonprofit, for a cause, or even for a hobby that you care about. Nothing commercial, please. Of course, I can't promise I'll be able to include all of them. There are guidelines at akimbo.link about how to do it and what to include and not include. The focus is 100% non-commercial and non-profit. I can't wait to see what you've got going on. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Reading Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or anything previous, please visit akimbo.link. That's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K. And click the appropriate button. Your questions keep getting better and better. Thank you for submitting them. Three this week. Here we go. Hey, Seth. Joseph from Nashville here. I'm hitting a midpoint in my career. And professionally, I've been in the nonprofit sector for about 15 years as the number two in a variety of organizations. And each one's been successful and grown, and I have a great track record. But as I put myself out into the marketplace as a number one guy, I've been getting feedback that says, effectively, you're good at being number two, but you're not a number one guy. I've been wondering about this. Does this mean in the gig economy that only entrepreneurs and startups have the credibility to be a number one? Do I need to start my own business in order to prove I have what it takes to lead at the next level? Thanks for all you do, Seth. So the first question is, how do they pick the Pope? It's a complicated process. And when you think about it, just creating a process to pick the Pope had to have been difficult to come up with. Or Patrick McGowan trying to figure out who is number one on the island. I will not be pushed, filed, stamped, indexed, briefed, debriefed, or numbered. My life is my own. For official purposes, everyone has a number. Yours is number six. I am not a number. I am a person. Picking number one is really fundamentally completely different than hiring anybody else in the organization. And I think it's worth thinking about the fact that there's probably more than one kind of number one. There is the founder. When we think of somebody who is in charge of things, it is usually the founder because most businesses 
are small businesses. Most organizations are run by the person who started the organization. That kind of founder is idiosyncratic. They have built the thing in their own image. Becoming that kind of number one, there's only one way to do it, by starting something. But it sounds from your question like you're trying to be the other kind of number one, the Pope, the one who is in charge but picked by a group of people whose job is to pick the person who is in charge. So using intentional design, who's it for and what's it for, the challenge you have is A, to find the groups that are looking for a number one, and B, to present as the kind of person they want to choose. And the question is, what kind of person do they want to choose? And unlike number two, number seven, or number six, number one varies because sometimes they want a caretaker. Sometimes they want someone who will perform miracles. Sometimes they want someone who is indubitably credentialed and is undeniably the right choice. Other times they want to be seen as powerful by picking someone who is subservient to them. If we look at what kind of person becomes a college president, for example, they're almost never somebody who has experience being a college president. How do we pick somebody like that? Well, different colleges clearly have demonstrated they want different things in a college president, and we can work our way down the list. For all of those reasons, I think it might be a trap to decide that you don't have what it takes to be a number one or that they're telling you that you don't have the credentials or the experience to be a number one because it's so varied. And it could be they're just sending you out to get a broomstick, to go away, to not bother them because they have picked somebody else for totally different reasons. But if somebody in the nonprofit world came to me and said, what do I need to do to become a number one running a nonprofit? My answer would be very straightforward. Get really good at fundraising. Because if you are really good at fundraising, you can run a college. You can run just about any nonprofit that you can imagine. Because the fundraising, that's the part that's super hard to scale. The fundraising is the part that gives you access to the resources that let you rent or buy all the other parts. And a board, a group that wants to go forward, well, perhaps they're going to make a bet on the charisma or background of somebody who's not a fundraiser. But if you can show that money will flow when you show up, it becomes really compelling to consider your resume seriously. Thanks for the work you're doing. I hope this helped. Hi, Seth. This is Matteo from Stockholm, Sweden. I'm a longtime listener and a huge fan of your work. So thank you for everything that you're doing. My question is regarding something that you don't really talk about that often, but is um, definitely covered in most of your work. And that is the role of trust in companies and in a company culture. I work for a company that has recently grown in size, and that came with the introduction of processes and procedures. And my reaction to these new, some, what seems to be superfluous processes is that they are indicative of low trust. Uh, 
So my question to you is, is bureaucracy and processes and procedures within an internal company indicative of low trust? This is a fascinating question, and I've been thinking about it a bunch. David Graeber wrote a book about bureaucracy, and it doesn't have the take that many people would expect in that bureaucracy, at some level, prevents corruption, and it enhances civility. That bureaucracy means that different people will be treated the same because there's forms and policies to make sure that we are not singling people out, that we're not requiring ad hoc decisions and bribery to move things forward. At some level, yes, as an organization scales, bureaucracy means that the people who run the place correctly are saying, we cannot trust everyone here to do things the way we would do them. That obviously makes sense. That when you're running an organization with two or three or four or five people in it, you can make decisions all day long because you're the one who has to own the consequences. But when you start hiring people who are going to make decisions that affect everyone else and you are not in the room to approve each and every one of them, then at some level, you're going to have to have policies and procedures because otherwise, the math of it simply doesn't scale. But on the other hand, and I think it's a pretty big but, in some organizations, bureaucracy also leads to more trust. Yes, there are institutions where no one is trusted to do anything, where everything is bureaucratically locked down, audited, measured. It's a monopoly churning it out. Nobody's allowed to decide what to say or what to do. But there are many other organizations that are saying to their people, instead of spending your cycles worrying about whether you've got some petty detail right, we're just going to bureaucratize all of that. And then we want you to spend your time doing the work we trust you to do. This is the work where there is no manual, where there can't be a manual. Because you have a bureaucracy in accounts payable and accounts receivable and all the other stuff that we were able to build a bureaucracy around, we are now giving you the foundation to go invent our future. That sort of trust is enabled by bureaucracy. Hey, Seth. This is Emily, usually calling from the Bronx, today calling from Terrytown, New York. First, I have to thank you. You exposed me to two pieces of literature that have really changed and shifted my outlook on life. One is uh, What Technology Wants, Kevin Kelly. And in the final pages of that book, I was led to James Carse's Finite and Infinite Games. And I am thinking so deeply about these and would love to hear you speak a little about how to have strength and play the infinite game as a business owner. Biggest thing that I am, a theme that I'm taking away from both these pieces of work are the good work of our lives to increase opportunity and choice for ourselves, for others, the whole world. And I want my business to do that, to increase choice, to increase options, to increase opportunity. Right now, I'm just thinking about that as being able to hire people, give them a chance to get a job. Um, but I would love to hear you think about and talk about other ways that we as movement makers and business owners increase choice and opportunity in the world. Thanks for all you do. 
Thank you for this, Emily. I'm glad that those books resonated. I let Kevin know. Both of those books are really important, and I encourage most of the people listening to this to check them out. I think they can help you see the world differently. One of the questions about seeing the world differently has to do with giving people a job. Because we've been indoctrinated for such a long time to think about jobs in a certain way, where the boss is paying us as little as possible and taking as little risk as possible and making us work as much as possible so that the job of the worker is to hold things back. That the system is organized not to encourage and amplify the linchpin who's going to go out on a limb and discover what is possible, but to make things smaller. So if you're going to hire people, a key part of it is figuring out whether you can create the conditions and find the people who are ready to thrive given the foundation of a job, given the bureaucracy you're going to build to enable them to thrive, as opposed to people who are just looking for a job. Because that might suck away a lot of your energy, and it's not going to open the door for the change you seek to make. In our new peer-to-peer permeable culture that is moving so fast, where ideas spread far faster than jobs ever will, there are chances to make a difference for communities that are different than saying, I hire you full-time. That we are building systems and technologies and structures to play an infinite game if we want to. And these sorts of opportunities, particularly in spaces where you work, where we're talking about nonprofits, where we're talking about community activism, it may be that that is where the big win lies. Thanks for the work you do. Thanks for listening. We'll see you all next time. It's not too late. Hey, it's Seth. About 16 years ago, I wrote my first post about climate change. And since then, every single metric has gotten worse. But it's not too late. What we need to do is shift it from a me problem to a we problem. And my new project is not my new project. It's our new project. More than 300 volunteers from 40 countries around the world have spent the last bunch of months putting together the Carbon Almanac. It's not coming out till June, but you, my loyal Akimbo listeners, I wanted you to see it and hear about it first. Check out thecarbonalmanac.org for all the details. Thank you for caring enough to make a difference.